Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, founder of Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Um, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Kevin Otto. Kevin is a professor at the University of Florida Gainesville. He's also the senior associate chair at, at the J. Creighton Pruitt Department of Biomedical Engineering. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Um, so this is, I have a lot of um, sort of questions for you. I wanted to talk to you about your work um, with the beta cell interface and the vagal nerve. And let's just start off with like, what can we learn about the beta cell vagal, vagal interface from other synapses? What, what can you, you know, let's just sort of like get us, get, get the audience into the water about what, what that is and why it's important. Okay, I, th I think I should, I should preface the question with the simple fact that I'm, I'm a biomedical engineer and specifically uh, a neural engineer. My lab expertise and my research domain is in neural interfaces. So uh, I typically know a lot about how devices and neurons and, and nervous systems interact both the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Uh, when we start getting to organs, um, that, that's where my knowledge will start to uh, fade a little bit. But um, I, I do think it is interesting in our space, <clears throat> the field of neural engineering has, has embraced the bioelectronic medicine revolution where in this field and in these studies, which um, have been greatly inspired by Kevin Tracy and his work, we're looking to interface with the nerves that innervate end organs, modulate those nerves to drive end organ function. <clears throat> so we, um, as, a, as a laboratory, are, in, are investigating several different applications of this space with, with um, several different clinical implications and indications. The, um, in the, the diabetes space, we have done work um, directly interfacing with the innervation of the pancreas mm -hmm. and stimulating that neuron or that nerve. It's a, a, a part of the vagal trunk and trying to assess the overall effect on pancreatic function. And it is a rather indirect effect at this point because our measurands so far have been uh, blood glucose and a little bit of biochemistry in terms of insulin release. We also have um, some of the histology surrounding the, the pancreas itself in these. Um, these are chronically implanted and these are type one models uh, with the streptozoidism uh, toxin. So I think that it's a little dangerous for me to extrapolate all the way to the synapse only because we don't have any data at that level. We do have data concerning our degree of neuromodulation and our degree of effect. And so far, we do see strong effects between driving vagal activity and the resultant blood glucose drops. 
this is very similar in a sense to how the neuromuscular junction might work if you were stimulating a, a, a sensory motor nerve that was innervating a muscle the driving of that alpha motor neuron would result in muscle tension we um, that is a graded monotonic response that typically is nonlinear. So is ours. Uh, we do typically see graded monotonic effects that, it, that are nonlinear in their effect. Um, just like the muscle innervation and, and other synapses, it's not monotonic in all dimensions, meaning uh, frequency matters and there is a sweet spot of uh, how fast you can drive that nerve. So in some ways, amplitude uh, is monotonic and, and higher amplitude is better. More current is, is better, if you will. Uh, turning up the frequency of stimulation doesn't always increase the output. And that is, is very similar to um, the neuromuscular junction so it's intriguing. There's a lot of parallels to synaptic aspects in other synapses. It's not clear in our results if it is purely the mechanism of the synapse that's having those effects. Right. There still could be there could be nerve effects. There could be end organ effects that are that are showing those uh, overall performance effects. And in the vagal, you know, how how does the the vagal nerve um, is a little bit, you know. Uh, tuned in a way, right? There's a certain tone that, that it carries. And so that can impact, that might impact, you know, what you're seeing or, or no? It absolutely could. And um, I, I should be careful to point out that we have really only looked at a, the streptozoides and type one models for this particular application space. So uh, we don't have a lot of control data to compare it to um, in terms of looking at sympathetic, parasympathetic balance and, and tone, doing careful autonomic measurements that could include heart rate variability or um, other classic autonomic system characterizations to get a, a, a parasympathetic, sympathetic balance measure uh, we haven't conducted those in these um, pancreatic studies in our type 1 model. Um, we have done that in other model systems for other indications. And there, there is a balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. Um, and that balance can have big effects on a lot of outcomes in those other indications. It... Uh, I personally am a type one patient, a PWD. Mm -hmm. So I know from personal experience that <clears throat> parasympathetic sympathetic balance matters a lot in my clinical outcomes. So it would greatly surprise me if, if we, as we continue to dig into the space, if we don't find parallels and then even potentially direct mechanistic data I would actually guess that the sympathetic drive would be more important uh -huh. than the parasympathetic balance, but I, I very well could be wrong in that space. It's going to be interesting to see people dissect out the homeostasis of this system because it's, it's pretty complex. Um, and I think people are just sort of wading into the waters 
from different directions to try to figure it out. Absolutely. And I think one of the important things in, in my comment to clarify, the neural governance of blood sugar is multifactorial, multi-organal. Um, and, you know, I know from personal clinical experience that the sympathetic drive likely to the liver, but in other domains can greatly spike blood, blood, blood glucose. Yeah. And so um, while that is balanced by things that could be parasympathetic drives to the pancreas, uh, you know, that's a, that's a different arm on the balance scale. And totally. it just may be a different aspect. It may be important in some domains to potentially try to inhibit the sympathetic activation axis um, to, to decrease the amount of, of um, sympathetic drive. Yeah, it could be. It was funny talking to Alejandro Casado the other day. He was talking about how the offshoot of the vagus moves through the liver and then um, ultimately ends up at the pancreatic islets, innervating them. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe you're going to have to address both, um, both of its uh, stops or both of its interfaces, liver and pancreas, ultimately. You know, that's a really interesting question from a device perspective because um, very similar to a road going through a city to get to another uh, city that it would be a, a different destination to try to, to try to interface the liver separately from the pancreas will be an, a big challenge because there's not an off ramp to yeah. interface. You're going to get both hepatic and pancreatic innervation. If you were to innervate from current device perspectives, obviously futuristic devices that can target, vesicular level or even even axonal level um if if we knew what axons to talk to and we knew how to talk to those axons yeah uh, he was saying that there's you know i mean i've been looking at some of the retrograde labeling studies where they're trying to discern like okay what's carried in this vagal you know innervation of uh, what what's in the bundle basically which ones are parasympathetic which ones are sympathetic which are afferent which are efferent so they're trying to like, you know, figure that all out. But yeah, you're right. If there's no off-ramp, or maybe there is, we don't know it yet. But um, the, it, that work is, you know, that work is so important because as, as an engineer trying to design technologies to approach this space, if, if we don't have a map, we don't know the roadmap, we don't know how to come in and approach the problem. So that, those basic mapping studies are so important to enable the eventual potential clinical targets if, if it's a, a device for example um, mm -hmm. we, we have to know the geography and we need to know um, uh, definitely the design constraints what's okay what's not okay yeah I think I think it would be a great uh, sort of off the record conversation to get you guys um, some of the people that are doing the retrograde the, the mapping the anatomy mapping some of the people that are more um, neurotransmitter focused and some bioengineers just in an off the record conversation and just sort of a brainstorm about this it would be so fun um, I wondered wow. from an electrical perspective I'm always hoping that these little axons are traveling together and we can use geography as our primary sorting tool making smaller devices that are targeted. Yeah. 
But I think increasingly we're, we're learning that either the wires are, are intermingling and crossing and you have different uh, neurotransmitter axons traveling. You know, if it's, if it's actually bundled at the fascicle level or even subfascicular, uh, it makes it a little easier with conventional techniques. But if they're not, then we have to use more targeting techniques like optogenetics or other molecular targets to give us that communication mechanism. And what if it turns out that some people have, you know, different anatomy and that anatomy might even make them more susceptible to certain autoimmune situations? That's a curious idea too, right? One of the fun thing about talking with uh, general surgeons and, and transplant surgeons in particular is they will tell you there's not two people on the earth that have the same anatomy. Um, so it, uh, it's, it's always, <laughs> at some level, there's always going to be a personalized medicine approach because mm -hmm. every person is different. Yeah. I agree. I think that that, it, that is such an important direction for uh, medicine and science to work together towards. This is like a totally way out there thought experiment, but what if the vagal nerve sort of like a modem, it gets damaged, whatever. I mean, we've, you see this in the literature, if someone has some kind of surgery and then later they get you know, type one diabetes, uh, but what if the vagal nerve sort of like a modem gets damaged and the Wi-Fi reception that the beta receives like goes bad and it's the, it's then that the beta enters distress and the immune system just does its job and engages. Is that a, even a, you know, are, are people talking about that? So it, there, there is some discussion in that space. And, and I think it is definitely a useful thought experiment and you, you are exactly on the, the right pace for some of the discussions I've heard one particularly relevant discussion point is in transplants. Um, interestingly, in a pancreas transplant, they don't reconnect the nerve. Mm -hmm. in, in heart transplants, they don't reconnect the nerve. They reconnect the, the blood vessels. The vascular supply is reconnected, but they don't worry about reconnecting the nerves, partly because of the challenge of doing so. And partly because when they have tried to just shove the nerve bundle into the organ, they, they, there's no clinical indication that that's helpful in it. And it, it may just as well be harmful. So um, interestingly, in those spaces, those transplanted organs, um, they don't die. They're obviously not performing normal physiologically, but this is not a normal physiologic case anyway. You're on massive immune suppression drugs and, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit of a duct tape for a broken car, but it does yeah. keep the car going. Yeah. Um, but there are indications that um, vagotomies is another example that um, have been performed for many different clinical indications and um, you know these patients don't immediately develop type 1 diabetes for example we don't know what their peak pancreatic performance is and if it's on par as a, sort of a, a systems physiologist hobbyist I would say um, the, the interesting thought space I would jump to is 
the the aspects of control systems and how they're done throughout the body especially when you have variables that are incredibly important to control the body never relies on a single control system typically in these control systems neural systems are very important because they're fast and they can be articulated very precisely by the main controller so the brain is able to individually address very fast for action to happen neural systems are not good for big changes in the long-term control nor are they the most effective way for doing massive mobilization across the entire body in those cases um, the reason they're not good for long-term control is because nervous systems inherently learn and if you're trying to do long-term changes nervous systems typically forget what they're doing and then revert back to what they were at <laughs> the baseline the reset so, yeah so basically in those cases you're going to use um typically um endocrine level functions hormonal just dump it into the bloodstream it goes everywhere it's um they can be long lasting so long story short i think this control system that is controlling blood glucose in a functioning beta cell human um probably can operate relatively well without vagal innervation of the, the end organ. The fine control may not be right there, and we probably don't have the data from even maybe five-minute interval type things you might get from a CGM right. may not be precise enough to see how good their, their blood sugar control is. Um, but if, um, I don't know, I don't know what the exact time constants of these the experiments would need to be, but we probably don't know exactly how well they're being controlled, but they're being controlled decently. And it's probably autocrine, pericrine, hormonal, the other control mechanisms that are there that maybe yeah. aren't as precise, but they're, they're pretty good. Alejandra was um, talking about the alpha cells impact on the beta cell and that it has some control features on it in terms of insulin secretion. But also, the, the, there's some new papers, the Philippe Blanco um, and the Galvani paper, or Galvani scientist paper came out last year where they um, stimulated, um, you know, they, they were, sorry, they were dealing with, um, you know, the vagal nerve and uh, in the nod mouse and, and regaining um, uh, regaining, uh, you know, insulin release or beta cell function. And Matthias uh, von Herreth has repeated that too. So that's kind of interesting too. So there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, manipulation of the vagal nerve going on now. And I think there's going to be a lot of um, results coming out of there showing, showing its impact. One of the Not fun things about end organs sort of generally is uh, in in many ways the the end organ effectors in our case that's sort of the discussion here that you know the beta cells in particular uh, they they want to have communication with the mothership they need that communication that they're there that that the system is still alive that they should continue doing their job and yeah 
we, we see this in many other nervous system integration points that without the nervous system integration, the, the distal organs or, or distal targets will, will die or will cease function. It's, it's almost certainly evolutionarily uh, beneficial to shut them down. If they're not being controlled effectively by the brain, they should either shut down and, and go um, stagnant or, or die if they can regenerate. So, you know, we, we see this with muscle all the time in a, in a peripheral nerve um, injury or um, in other cases. Eventual reinnervation can definitely lead to regeneration if, if the end target has a regeneration capability. And so I think there's a lot of intriguing harmony in that, in that overall thinking that innervation not only provides some input and provides a lot of output from the organ, but also provides a, an addressing link, uh, a reason to be a reason to go forward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I think there are some similarities with this whole like modem, you know, uh, sort of system when we talk about this innervation of these end organs like the eyelids. But I wanted to ask you more about your, well, first of all, let's just talk about this one other paper. There's a paper that we talked about earlier, about, uh, Richard Ware's paper. Um, and this was the opogenetic stimulation of pancreatic function via vagal cholinergic uh, axons. Richard is over at University of Colorado. And um, you were, we were talking about that paper and you were saying um, you, um, you enjoyed it or you thought there was some good, some good data there. Right. I think that what they're finding here with this um, very important um, transmitter level addressing protocol using optogenetics to talk to the channel rhodopsin cholinergic cells in particular. Um, their, their results, I think, um, help, help our results in many ways that uh, we hope that we are targeting acetylcholine carrying afferent axons that are eventually innervating the pancreas, but in our approach, that's actually really challenging to confirm. Um, when you stimulate electrically at a point in the nerve, we know that we excite action potentials in both directions. And so in this case, we're exciting um, afferent to the brain, but also efferent back to the, the end organ. And I think I just spoke earlier and said afferent, but they, they you know, are using um, acetylcholinergic modulation, uh, cholinergic modulation to um, drive the efferent of the pancreas and they see the effects. So I think that, that um, that's the mechanism that we hope we're, we're achieving and they're showing that that mechanism does receive uh, some of the same results that we were seeing as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe room for a collaboration there. I think the, uh, again, going back to that roadmap aspect, all of these, not only knowing where the roads go and how the, the lanes of traffic are divided, but also knowing who's carrying the information and what are the, the vehicles, that those are all really, really important pieces of information. Um, if, if we need to interface with a, a, a semi-truck versus uh, a, 
passenger car. That's a different engineering approach. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it sets the um, parameters, right, for what the work you do once you know the map. Um, I wanted to also talk about lab work that's going on in your lab. And um, let's see, you, you shared with me a great paper, Bioelectronics in Medicine. Basically, um, it's um, uh, Elliot Durr, who is in your lab. And the title is Designing a Bioelectric Treatment for Type 1 Diabetes, Targeted Parasympathetic Modulation of Insulin Secretion. And that was published online July 28th, 2020. Do you want to talk a little bit about that paper? It's really a nice paper. Well, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate the comment. Uh, this was really uh, Elliot Durr's baby um, as a plug. He is a senior PhD student that, that is planning to defend here in uh, two or three months and uh, is actively looking for in the next opportunity space. But in, um, in crafting this paper, we, we collaborated pretty heavily with uh, Yogi Patel, who did a lot of brilliant work with Robbie Terra at Georgia Tech and has gone on in bioelectronics and medicine space um, to do some phenomenal typically neuromodulation understanding, um, and as well as um, Rick Johnson and Martha Campbell Thompson here at the University of Florida. They, um, Some heavy hitters. <laughs> they are. It was a really, really fun collaboration to um, bring in pancreas experts and, and peripheral neural experts to try to come at this from a holistic, comprehensive as, as we could get, um, understanding what's been done in the field of peripheral neuromodulation and um, with respect to the pancreas. Um, the most of, and this is, this is uh, precursor work to future papers, which we are preparing right now that are getting much closer with our personal results. So we don't, we don't have any lab results in this paper, but mm -hmm. some of the aspects of the paper that are really interesting is um, uh, when you look at the comprehensive literature that was out there when we started working on this, um, there were a lot of cervical vagus level investigation, yes. especially including, historically. Yeah, including Kevin Tracy's work too, right? He was starting out uh, with the cervical um, stimulator. They're still cervical for, and one of the reasons from a clinical perspective, one of the reasons that is, is because those are still the approved, that's the approved location from the FDA perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it is a really interesting spot to do some science. It's also a very difficult spot to interpret data because the, at the cervical level, that, that Vegas has a lot of, uh, efferent targets still on its path. Um, so as we started to look through the branching to look at uh, subdiaphragmatic aspects and, and um, other approaches, that was a, a fun landscape to survey. And the other thing that we really noticed in, in doing this literature dive was um, there, there wasn't as much bioelectronic medicine investigation of type one models. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of normal glycemic animal models. Um, I see that. I see table one here. 
Yeah. So that those those were really, if you can't tell, I've written several proposals in this space saying, you know, what was needed, what was needed and what we thought was to get closer to the pancreas and to do it in a type one model. Right. Yeah, it's great to see the landscape really well characterized here. You can see, you know, it's it's uh, 1966, a bunch of work done, then in the 70s, 80s, then a big gap in the 90s. And just only, you know, only um, two papers, 2002 and 2016. Uh, so there's, yeah, so it's, it's definitely ramping up again. And I think this, reading through this paper gives people a, a, a deep appreciation for the work that has been done. And um, as you said before, spaces where work could be done. I think there was, um, for a while in the field of neural engineering, um, there was not appropriate um, attention paid to the peripheral nervous system. And, and I honestly tell you that no one was more guilty of it than I was. There are many people out there who have championed the peripheral nervous system for a long time. Uh, and then it was really sort of uh, Kevin Tracy and the bioelectronic medicine revolution, which GlaxoSmithKline and, and others, Galvani investments from the NIH and from DARPA have, have drawn a lot of neural engineers who were focused in central and spinal to the periphery and once we got there first of all we realized how little we know about pancreatic innervation of end organs and secondly uh, we realized that there's a lot of work to do in designing interfaces and programming the interfaces to work for goals it's exciting times um you know, because it's almost like, uh, you know, the, the, the West is wide open. There's a lot of room for scientists to move in there. Um, and so in terms of, you know, the, I, I love the way the paper gave, uh, and I would suggest everybody look at it, um, gave this landscape uh, the love it needs. Um, but in terms of your own work, do you want to dig a little more uh, and, and let people know what is it? What are you focusing on right now? In, uh, in this model space, we, um, we're currently preparing a, a manuscript for submission, which details um, the streptozoides in rats that uh, were implanted with innervation, um, pancreatic innervation cuffs, uh, cuff electrodes that were wrapped around those. And so we're, we're modulating that entire organ or uh, that entire nerve uh, to try to assess the effects on the pancreas. Um, we do, we're just finalizing histology and, and pulling that together into that manuscript. The, um, the future, what we've sort of seen in that space was, was what we expected. It was also uh, challenging to discern exactly some of the effects. And so, um, some of the findings that are coming out about um, neurotransmitter levels and, and what we are leaning towards in the next instance is that the, the mechanism, the level to interface is probably not at the nerve, but probably mm. closer to the fascicle or mm. even potential axon. 
Um, and if that is the case, then obviously we need different devices. You need devices that can can penetrate the into the nerve and establish long-term connection, potentially very focal, um, potentially multi-channel, and even potentially a, a different mechanism. Maybe it's not electrical. Maybe it is uh, an optogenetic or or other uh, mechanism to drive. So. Um, we do have uh, active side projects and active projects in the laboratory that are aside from this that are looking at advanced interfaces, um, trying to get vesicular or, or subvesicular um, driving, ideally um, specific targeted populations. That uh, again, we need the map to know what to target, but. Um, um, yeah, I think just in talking to you, I feel like we're going to, um, we have this off the record, we're inviting scientists to speak off the record. I mentioned this to you before, but I'm just in talking to you, it's just coming to mind that we need to have a panel that talks about creating a roadmap for pancreatic beta vagal interface. Like what is the roadmap and how can we create that quickly? Uh, you know, and, and I, should, I, I would be remiss at this point if I if I did not give my collaborator a lot of credit in this space. Martha Campbell Thompson was the recipient of the uh, NIH Spark Award. Oh, that's great. That was uh, in particular one of the biggest goals of, of that project of that Spark Award, and her award in particular was in trying to map the innovation of the pancreas. Uh, they're, they awarded, um, I believe, three pancreas awards. So um, I would definitely, A, suggest talking to Martha. I will. Uh, She's on my list. <laughs> good. Um, and, and in addition, the NIH is, is trying to make most of the Spark data publicly available. They are working on how that delivery platform to make all of the imaging, the histology, the, the other physiology experiments, all of that data would be so that you could go into an organ system and try to look at other people's mapping experiments. That's fantastic. And that's Spark is doing that? S-P-A-R-C. Right? Yeah. I, I, peripheral activity to resolve conditions. Mm -hmm. I've been looking at them, but I think, um, I wasn't aware that that was an uh, initiative of theirs, and I think it's phenomenal. Um, the, another potential person to talk to would be the director of Spark, which is Gene Silico. And uh, the, the Spark initiative and the Spark program was, is really the, the NIH's bioelectronic medicine funding mechanism. It's a, a very, very big program that is run out of, directly out of the director's office. And the first job number one is to make the maps. Right. That's fantastic. Well, uh, we'll definitely publicize that, and I'll be reaching out to um, both Jean and Martha Campbell Johnson soon. Well, is there anything else you want to share with our audience, Kevin? I don't think so. I, I appreciated the opportunity to talk here. It's... Yeah, it was great. I loved. Um, I love talking about the um the system from the bioengineering standpoint i think it's um i think it's fascinating to try to 
think about how it works and how we can basically tweak it to work better. So thank you again. Thank you.